0: You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Well, this morning we're going to continue looking at... uh some of these men in history in the next section. First one being Karl Barth. And just to sort of set this up a little bit, remember where we are in history. We're approaching the end of the 19th century. We're coming around the corner into the 20th century. Both of these first two theologians were born in uh, the late 1880s. Let's see. Well, trust me, they were. There we go. There's Carl, 1886. And as we look at Paul Tillich, he was born the same year. So these two men were contemporaries. And um, uh, the third one we're going to look at is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was 20 years their junior. So we're coming through the end of the uh, 19th century. And uh, you remember what was going on then. It was really uh, the rise of uh, modernism, it was called, late in the 19th century, and then eventually just liberalism. Um, And it was very pervasive. Even, um, as we know, Spurgeon had to deal with this. If you're familiar with the downgrade controversy, he was dealing with the same issues, modernism or liberalism and liberal theology, um, during his ministry as well, toward the end of his ministry. Uh, Karl Barth is uh, chapter 33, uh, the founder of what became called Neo-Orthodoxy. Sounds kind of good. And in fact, as you probably saw in your reading, he really didn't care for that title too much. But um, I think that first paragraph sets this up a little bit uh, in uh, that chapter. The author says, European liberal Protestant theology, reflecting its Enlightenment roots, had turned away from traditional religious authority, specifically the Bible as divine revelation, and instead trusted modern science and human reason. They wanted to preserve Christianity for the modern world, but ended up with a very human-oriented God that could only be known through human experience. Liberalism also reflected the Enlightenment's great optimism about the future. Throughout the uh, 19th century, of course, the Industrial Revolution and all the great inventions that came out, you know, everything from uh, electric power to, uh, as you came into the early years of the 20th century uh, the internal combustion engine, the motor vehicles, and then flight there was a lot of optimism uh, and then they had a head on collision with World war one and it was just devastating uh, in a lot of ways i mean it uh, it changed culture it changed everything and and primarily it was just the absolute carnage of it. Um, uh, people people re- began to realize that we are not on this upward trend like we thought we were, or at least not, you know, after that point in time. So um, what are your thoughts so far on Karl Barth? Any observations you had on what you saw? What was his uh, educational background? Do you remember that? Just very basically, it was extremely liberal, right? german Liberal theology was flourishing. It was considered to be the, the height of intellectual achievement in that time. And, uh, Karl Barth was, was part of that. He, uh, <clears throat> he did respond though ag- against this idea that science and human reason, uh, could, could be the means through which you came to know God. And, uh, this is one of the things that they rebelled against. And uh, turning to science and human reason just marginalized the Word of God, okay? And uh, do you remember one of the things that happened, or still happens, and it's still going on right now, when people turn away from the Word of God, but they want to maintain uh, some sort of a religious structure or even a Christian structure, what happens when that when that goes on? They have all the jargon, all the words, we're Christian, they might even talk about the Bible or Jesus, but uh, what happens in those systems, and what happens when people do that? Okay, it gets watered down, yeah, the truth gets watered down. How does it get watered down? I heard, yeah, redefinition of terms. This is going on right now, of course, right? I mean one of the great tasks of theologians nowadays and it always has been is to maintain biblical definitions because the opposition comes um dressed up as Christian, dressed up as biblical dressed up as uh you know it doesn't come dancing in like a um a, a shaman in a in the middle of a clearing in a jungle, chopping up a chicken spraying chicken blood around you know nobody would buy into that it comes dressed as Biblical, as Christian, right? Classic Christian cults do the same thing, but they redefine all biblical terminology. One of the things that Karl Barth um, sort of rebelled against, and, and you see these movements taking place, they recognize excesses and they say, well, we don't want to be like that. We want to swing this thing way over here. Uh, this goes on in evangelicalism even, even today, Right. We tend to sort of swing back and forth, uh, uh, responding to certain movements, and then often it winds up with an excess way over here on the other side of some kind. But uh, Karl Barth, um, he was considered to be, um, and I first heard about Karl Barth maybe 40 years ago in sort of a study like this, sort of a survey of theologians and, and um he was called one of the premier theologians of the 20th century, one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century. Personally speaking, I've always been someone who's sort of been sort of slow to jump on bandwagons, you know. I might be like the last guy to want to really, uh, you know, shoot up a flare over some guy. And, and uh, I still don't think he's a great theologian, but I understand the impact uh, that somebody like that can have. And uh, we're going to really see this with, when we look at Paul Tillich. But um, what do you think were some of his um, uh, distinctives as far as his theology? Anything, anything jump off the page at you that you, that you read? Yeah, and, and those are two excesses. Um, extreme transcendence, where God is, is so separated from his creation, which he is, or extreme imminence. That he is uh, so personal that he is no longer God. And these are sort of uh, two polarities that, that, that the church has had to sort of wrestle with over the centuries. And um, uh, one of the things that liberalism did, and one of the th- reasons that liberalism got to be popular, is because of its extreme, imminent God. You know, And you even hear that today. Well, we're not, I don't really want anything doctrine. That's, I don't want that. I want to know something practical. I want a, I want a personal savior. And of course, he is a personal savior. But remember, does he ever stop being the transcendent creator God who is separate from his creation? No, you have to have both because Jesus is fully God and fully man. And the incarnation really is the answer to that, right? Because he, it's when the, the when the, that which is imminent indwells that which is temporary, which is us, right? And so these were sort of the part of the wrestling match that was going on. Um, In your your book, a couple of quotes, I thought, here. Um, Some of these theologians who studied in the European universities and who had been really trained in liberal theology, um, it says, they began to react against liberalism and reject it. Their essential difference with both liberal theology and fundamentalist theology, was in their view of divine revelation and the Bible, as we will see. Ironically, the movement eventually was seen by liberals as fundamentalism in disguise, and by fundamentalists as liberalism in disguise. It has come to be called neo-orthodoxy. So you can see there was also a movement around the turn of the the century to preserve the Bible for what it actually is, the fundamentalist movement. Um, There were books published called the Fundamentals, and they're very good. I got a couple of them and I think one of them was published in 1901 or something like that. A lot of my books are really old and oldie moldy, right? But but they were very suspicious of each other uh, as as schools of theology are now, right? Also um, in his back back Ground as he pastored a reformed church in Switzerland, it says he discovered that liberal theology had left him with nothing to offer to his people in wartime Europe, and he turned back to the Bible. So, there again, World War I was just this incredible, um, had this impact on the way people thought and the way that they. They saw the future and everything. And a lot of, even a lot of uh, theologians and others who had come out of the uh, reform schools, particularly Princeton Theological Seminary, sort of the, the focal point of reform theology, and they had a post-millennial view of of uh the future of eschatology, many of them uh simply abandoned that because it has a very optimistic view that things are gonna get better and better and the church is going to usher in the this kingdom and and uh world war one just really uh, uh kind of decimated that so that fell out of favor uh in in large part because of world war one and, and that carnage that took place. Okay, so uh have any other thoughts on Karl Bart? That's correct. <laughs> There is, that's one of the main reasons I don't personally consider him a great theologian. Impactful, yeah. Um, very, very uh influential. But isn't that more of a commentary on the uh, theological world out there than it is on uh, what is biblical or not? In other words, um, if you looked at what's popular now, today, um, I'm not sure however many of us could even identify with very much of it at all. I know I wouldn't. We are a remnant holding to the positions that this church holds to and teaches. A small remnant. Don't ever think you're going to be in the majority in this life. You know, if you're going to be biblical, um, and that's kind of what was going on there. Um, now, here's one of his statements: The Bible is God's word, so far as God lets it be His word, so far as God speaks through it, and then he has this quote: "The Bible is God's word." is a confession of faith, a statement made by the faith that hears God himself speak in the human word of the Bible. You can see what his view of Scripture was or wasn't in that statement right there. And that's from his uh, main work, Church Dogmatics. He's very famous for that book. Anybody want to interact with that? Yeah, that's kind of what he's famous for. The Bible is not the word of God. It becomes the word of God when you have an existential or an experiential interaction with it. And, of course, we know that the Bible is God's Word with us or without us, right? It stands as God's Word. Um, Here's another one. On the basis of God's decree, the only truly rejected man is his own son, so that God... God, so that god's rejection can no longer fall on other men or be their concern again from church dogmatics his systematic theology work um, you buy that what does that make you think his position is on universalism. universalism? It sure sounds that way, and he was accused of that by a lot of theologians. he kind of denied it, but it's if you just had that I mean that sure sounds like that i mean if it sounds like he's saying Christ died on the cross for the sins of all of humanity, and it's a done deal, right? Nothing nothing left after that. So uh, that's Karl Barth. Any other thoughts you might have on him? His doctrine of election was a little skewed. Was a little what? Skewed. Ske- skewed, yeah. Yeah, um, and and the thing is, a lot of times with these these folks, you can... You can uh, see quotations from them, and they did say some good things, and many time, oftentimes they were very Christ-centered, and they talked a lot about Christ and, and, and that type of thing. And you can sort of, as you're reading them, you can kind of go, okay, check, 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 and all of a sudden something like that, and you just go, whoa, no way, you know? And yet one of the things you're going to see in common with many of these folks is, what's the issue here? Person of Christ, but what? How do we know about the person of Christ? From what? The Word of God, and so what you see here, they'll get right down to the issue of the Scriptures, and then they'll they'll bail on it. That's that's a tell, theologically. When you when you don't have a high view of Scripture and start there, um, nothing's going to go well, right? You're you're gonna you're gonna be all over the map. I mean, you might as well go back to natural revelation or science uh, and that type of thing. Okay. Any other thoughts you might have on Carl Barth? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what I mean. You read them, and depending on what you're reading, you can nod your head and go, "Okay, yeah, sounds pretty good." And yet, when you kind of stand back and look at the fully orbed picture of these guys, and there again, it sort of leaves you with a question mark. You know. Uh, where was this guy really spiritually? And um, thankful, I don't have to give the definitive answer on that question. You know, I can, I can evaluate all we, all of us can, and we should. What they publish, what they write. Okay, that's what we have to deal with. Yeah, Aaron, there you go. Yeah. He got very famous toward the end of his life for that. The statement that comes before that too—that somebody would ask him, you know, what did you learn in theology? What did you learn? What's give us the essence of it all? Boil it down, and he said, "Jesus loves me, this I know." Right, that type of thing. So, um, yeah, but a very influential uh, theologian. Well, another one, a contemporary with him, Paul Tillich. Again, born in 1886. Died in 1965. Um, Paul Tillich, um, definitely a liberal in his theology. Again, trained in uh, German European universities, and um, uh, a man whose uh, theology—well, <laughs> personally, it's—it's just—it's really hard to pin it down. You know, kind of come up with some definitions. Really, all you can kind of do is, uh, uh, is sort of just look at the quotes and try to evaluate them biblically. But uh, he also reacted against the extreme transcendence of God that was being propagated at the expense of God's imminence. You know, people got so uh, tangled up in the, the transcendence of God that they almost had a God that could not relate to people. And uh, once again, personally, I think the incarnation of Christ. The indwelling of the Spirit at, at at Pentecost and the way God relates to his people is the answer to that. Um, and uh, his theology was much like that of Karl Barth. On uh, page 244, he again, he was trained in uh University of Berlin, Tübingen, Halle, and Breslau. Earned a Ph.D. in 1912, was ordained in the Lutheran Church, and then, in 1914, became an army chaplain, experienced the horrors of World War I for the next four years. He spent as much time digging graves as he did preaching sermons. And then, much like Karl Barth, this caused him to see the insufficiency of much of the theology and philosophy he had been taught. Interesting way that uh, you know the reality of the world can kind of come crashing down on uh, on your your thought structures. I think about so many of the young people that are in college today. You know, learning, listening, and learning what they're learning. Are they really being prepared for the world? You know, they're going to have a rude awakening when they get out there. Um, there is such a thing as absolute truth, you know, and they do it anyway. They know when they leave that campus and they go out and they get in their car and they sh- they turn on their car and the and the uh, the gas gauge says empty. They don't say, you know, that's truth for you. My truth is I have half a tank. They don't do that. They go get gas, right? And so at some point in time, you have to, you have a, uh, you have to deal with reality. And this is what World War I really came crashing down around this whole generation of people. Um, Battle of the Somme. I need a military historian here. Was it sixty thousand were killed? I think sixty thousand in one day i mean it it's just horrific what happened, and it really impacted these people. He was also um, and this is kind of something to to file away um, he uh He was offered a position at Union Theological Seminary in New York, and so he came to the United States and took up a teaching position at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. And from there, he was uh, kind of uh, adopted by the American public and the American theological uh, uh, system. And uh, eventually, he uh, even got other theological positions and became very, very famous. He stayed in the United States during World War II. He was here um, Union Theological Seminary, and uh, we're going to see that Dietrich Bonhoeffer actually went there as well. Um, but uh, if you want a little exercise, just a little exercise in comparison, get online, look up the Master's Seminary, TMS, down at the Grace Community Church, and just look at their priorities. Look what they say. Here's why we exist. Here's our priorities. Here's what we're all about. Okay? Just spend a few minutes, read through that. And then go look up Union Theological Seminary. It's in New York City, appropriate. I think it's in Manhattan as a matter of fact, and uh, just look at what their priorities are, okay? <clears throat> These guys, most of them went to a Union Theological Seminary. It was considered a great school of training. Um, but uh, try that and see how that compares, and you'll you'll see quite an amazing difference there. Um, but that's where he became a professor. And and he was there until 1955. So well into the through the middle of the 20th century, he was a very influential, uh, well known, very public um, academic superstar. And then he became a prophet Harvard until 1962, and then a professor of theology at the University of Chicago until his death in 1965. So you can see where his academic uh, credentials were and uh, where he was very very popular. Um, Paul Tillich, okay, Um, his theological method, okay, it's a little bit hard to read, it's a little small, Uh, his first, theology should listen to the real questions of the contemporary cultural situation. These questions, Tillich called them ultimate questions, came from science, psychology, sociology, literature, the arts, etc., but were primarily posed by philosophy. Second, theology should provide answers to those questions that are consistent with the eternal truth of the Christian gospel. Third, theology should offer those answers using means that come out of and therefore most effectively communicate with the contemporary situation. Did you get kind of jerked around a little bit in those, with those three? You find yourself going, no, yeah, no. Huh? What what's good about that? What's wrong with that? Well, what if I do read the Bible and I come up with a biblical principle? How do I then communicate that to... What method do I use? Therefore, most effectively communicate with contemporary answers using means that come out of and therefore communicate with contemporary culture. Does the means of me communicating the Word of God... Do I have to search in the culture to find out the means to communicate? What does the Bible tell me to do? Second Timothy four two, preach the word. Right. We also have an example all the way through Scripture of that: the prophets, the apostles, Jesus Christ Himself. They didn't consult the cultures they were in and say, "Hey, what sounds good to you guys?" You know, or "Hey, you know, how about we we get a message from Sammy sock puppet here?" You know, we don't. know Something that is really going to be entertaining for the world. Now, of course, liberalism loves this kind of thing, and particularly uh, the, the, the seeker-sensitive movement. They'll use all kinds of means except what the Bible tells them to use because people respond to it. It's very popular. You can build a massive church using means that uh, really are not scriptural means. Okay? Oh, you ain't seen nothing yet. Wait do you see. Okay. Paul Tillich, here's a quote from his Systematic Theology. Only those who have experienced the shock of transitoriness, the anxiety in which they are aware of their finitude, the threat of non-being, can understand what the notion of God means. I looked up finitude, the state of having limits or bounds, and transitory, not permanent or temporary. Those are the only people that really can understand what the notion of God means. When you understand that you're finite, or that you're limited. Yeah, I am. We are. But are those the only ones? What is really required for me to come to some kind of an understanding of God? Regeneration. Regeneration, yeah. The illumination by the Spirit of God. I mean the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. Okay. So again, this is systematic theology, very very popular. When somebody writes a systematic theology, that's like their their thoughts on paper, you know, and they last a long time. And uh, how about this one? The being of God is being itself. The being of God cannot be understood as the existence of a being alongside others or above others. If God is a being, he is subject to the categories of finitude, especially to space and substance. Oh, come on. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> um, and even you can go back and see what his, his definition of God was, you know, clearly. Um, it, it, he, he really had a view of God that was more like the force from Star Wars, you know, sounds that way, you know. Um, okay, well, how about this one? Our encounter with God, who is a person, includes the encounter with God, who is the ground of everything personal, and as such, is not a person. That's a shrink question. We're dealing with the oddier. <laughs> is God a person? Um, it, it and these are published works. You know, sometimes if somebody says something in a sermon or maybe off the cuff, you could you know nowadays anything somebody just mutters can get. Plastered all over the internet, right? But these are published works. Um, it, it, I know personally I can't relate, relate to it. Um, here's a comment from, the, from the page 245. Certainly few theologians have ever received the public acclaim Tillich did. He was truly a legend in his own time. However, his life as a Christian theologian was marked by great ambiguity, which you've noticed. He was beset by doubts about his own salvation and feared death greatly. He promoted socialism while enjoying the benefits of an upper-middle-class lifestyle. He was renowned as a great ecumenical Christian and yet rarely attended church and apparently lived a fairly promiscuous lifestyle. You know, I'm not sure of the the publication of his systematic theology. Um, and that one's 55, so I'm not sure about the timing on those. But sometimes, sometimes people do—they uh, republish or they redo some of their their works. I'm not sure he did much of that at all. The first one, first one was 51. So he's a mature man. He's a mature theologian at this stage of the game, and a, and a renowned professor of theology. Okay, um, Paul Tillich, and and here's—I'm sure I'm sure this author is functioning as much as a the, as a historian and not so much as a theologian, because in the page 249, Paul Tillich has been considered the most influential American theologian since Jonathan Edwards, and the most influential American theologian of the 20th century. Okay, You are, yeah. Footnote 10, Tillich denied that the resurrection of Jesus was a historical, physical event. Greatest theologian of the 20th century. Pickens must have been kind of slim in the 20th century. And yet... What does this tell us about what is popular out there? What can be popular, right? Um, now, the writer does say, go down at the bottom of page two to forty-nine. in contrast to his desire to find answers in divine revelation to questions that come from human reason, he ended up finding answers in human reason that he communicated in the guise of divine revelation. In the end, his theology seems to be just a new form of the old liberalism in which the message of Christianity found in the Bible is essentially lost. I think that's a good summation of what he was all about and what he taught. Yeah, it, it's you look at their website, I mean, it's it's a mind-blower what they're involved in. I mean, and you will not find anything having anything to do with really the Bible, the Word of God. Um, their, their purpose is essentially to promote anything woke. Uh, well, you, you, you just check it out. But first, set that framework by the master Seminary. What do they do? What are they all about? How do they, how do they approach the Word of God and they, their training of people? And then uh, with that as your template, go look at Union Theological Seminaries. So, um, But that's kind of still the state of an awful lot of what's called theology and, and um, religious thinking out there. Okay, any other thoughts on either of these two fellows? A little bit of a shift when we get to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. In fact, I think it's a, quite a significant shift. Um, again, about 20 years the junior to, of these two guys, um, 1906. And of course, he, we know that he was uh, executed by the Nazis in 1945 for his stand um, as a Christian, but also as an anti-Nazi, as we're going to see. Um, he is generally considered to be within the same camp theologically as Karl Barth, uh, Neo-Orthodoxy, but he also differed with Barth on quite a few things. And um, he also was trained at German University, University of Tübingen, University of Berlin, Berlin. and uh, he was uh, a friend of Karl Barth, as a matter of fact. Karl Barth took notice of him, and uh, praised him for his doctoral dissertation and his theological approach and everything. He became a, a well-known, young, very smart uh, theologian. Um, he pastored for a while, and then he came to the United States. He spent a year at Union Theological Seminary in New York. Okay, And uh, here's a quote. On his time at Union Theological Seminary, he said, No theology here. <laughs> so that tells you a little bit about his approach. And um, it, it, it's, not in your, it's not in our reading here, but let me just read a little bit of his history. This is from a, um, a foreword by uh, Eric McTaxis, who wrote a foreword to his, uh, a publication of, his, of Bonhoeffer's book. Um, and he says this, Bonhoeffer did not expect to find much by way of theology at Union, and alas, he was not disappointed. In fact, he wrote home, there is no theology here. After all, he had earned his doctorate in Berlin among the greatest theological minds of that time, but in retrospect, Bonhoeffer's time in New York was not to be marked by what he learned at Union, but rather by what he experienced at an African-American church in Harlem. One Sunday in September 1930, a fellow student from Alabama took Bonhoeffer up to the Abyssinian Baptist Church. What the young German saw there took his breath away. The congregation was on fire with faith, shouting and rejoicing in the worship, and during the, con- and during the sermon too, and their many activities during the week reflected what they did on Sunday. Dietrich saw that they were not merely religious, but that they were real Christians, disciples of the Christ they worshipped. So they were not playing church, but rather were the church the people of God living out their faith with a joy Bonhoeffer had never seen, neither in the churches in Germany nor in the white Protestant churches in New York. From that Sunday on, he went to the Abyssinian Baptist Church every week, even teaching Sunday school and becoming involved in the lives of many of the congregation. He would never be the same. Whatever faith resided in his head in the next months descended to his heart and from there suffused his whole being. When he returned to Germany in 1931, everyone saw that he was somehow different. Isn't that interesting? His influence was not from the great theologians of the German, uh, uh, you know, faculties of great European, German uh, universities, Um, and it sure wasn't from Union Theological Seminary, but he was very much impressed and impacted by this. Pentecostal black church. So we're back to this issue of imminence, extreme imminence, probably what they would focus on in a in a university. And as long as you can have and talk about great philosophical comments and thoughts about this God you're talking about, um, that was it. But what did he see in this black church? He saw the imminence that can be there in a real relationship with Jesus Christ. It was real to him, right? Isn't that something? This guy is really smart. He's one of the premier thinkers of uh, theologians of the of his day, and yet he's impressed with what's going on in this church. He saw some real faith in these folks. Okay, any thoughts on that? He came back to Germany, pretty much just in time for Hitler to come to power. And Hitler came to power in 1933. And, uh, during this time, Bonhoeffer saw what was going on with the Nazi movement. He opposed it. He was against it. And, um, he, he then moved to London. Uh, he was, um, very much interested in ministering and pastoring to people, but he, uh, he became, uh, disillusioned with what was going on in his own country and, uh, Eventually, he found that a seminary or worked in a seminary that was illegal. It was um, outlawed by the Nazis. And there on page 252, the Nazis did not permit Bonhoeffer to speak, teach, or write. So eventually, he became involved with the underground movement and eventually a plot to assassinate Hitler. It's not really clear as to what his involvement in that plot was. It probably didn't matter one bit to the Nazis or the Gestapo once they found this out. Um, but what happened right when Hitler came to power, uh, Bonhoeffer did this. And this is, uh, again, part of this article. Bonhoeffer himself took the lead very early on, giving a radio speech just days after Hitler's election as chancellor in 1933. Um, radio would have been our Internet, right? I mean, that's how you contact as many people as possible. In it, Bonhoeffer explained that the popular German idea of a strong leader or Fuhrer was not based on God's idea of leadership, but on a mistaken idea that made an idol of the leader and that made him not a real leader at all, but a misleader. This was on radio, public radio, going out to Germany right after Hitler was elected. And this was only the beginning. Bonhoeffer knew that God was calling him to wake up the church to what was happening But as with the prophets before him, Bonhoeffer's cries fell mostly on deaf ears. For one thing, the church in Germany was not used to standing against governmental authorities. The Lutheran Church and the German state had long had an amicable history, so when Hitler became the head of the German state, almost no one could see the troubles that lay ahead. The typical religious pieties. That it was not the role of Christians to be involved in politics, or that it was their role only to pray and preach the gospel, were all trotted out and firmly believed. By the time some church leaders saw what was happening, it was simply too late to do anything. By then, Hitler had consolidated his power to the extent that it was impossible to oppose him. The window of religious, op- the window of religious liberty in Germany had been shut. Okay, hearing anything there? Can you identify with any of that? Not to that extent, probably yet. Um, but these things tend to kind of come in waves, you know. And uh but that's where he that's a stand that he took because he knew it was wrong. Um then when he continued to try to minister to people, uh the uh the Nazis shut him down every way they could, and uh his life was in jeopardy. And then in 1939, some of the people encouraged him, get out of Germany because your life is in danger. And he came back to the United States in 1939, briefly returned to the U.S., but returned to Germany after that. he uh, He accepted the offer to come, but no sooner had he boarded the ship to cross the Atlantic in early June of 1939 that he began to have second thoughts During the journey, he felt increasingly unsettled, complaining in letters to his friends back home that because the ship crossed a time zone every day, it became more and more confusing and difficult to keep his promise of praying with them at the same hour each day, in order to remain with them in spirit, as it were. It was as though each day of the journey carried him further and further from himself. By the time he arrived at the beautifully appointed apartment assigned to him the so-called prophet's chamber at Union Theological Seminary, He was already scheming how to tell his hosts he could not stay as long as they had hoped. What had been a promise to stay three years soon became one year. Soon he felt staying through the fall might be the limit of what he could do. Remember, this is uh, uh, June 1939. On September 1st of 1939, the Germans attacked Poland. essentially started World War II. So this is what's going on there. Um, and now he's at Union Theological Seminary. He was did not like it there. He was unhappy. All that June in New York, he searched the scriptures for an answer to the strange but unshakable feeling of being in the wrong place. And afterward, he walked the lonely, sweltering streets of Manhattan, a man like a man divided from himself, like an exile in a ghost. He wandered through museums. He took a, in a newsreel in Times Square. But even that only reminded him of what was happening at home and made him long to return, one day he boarded the subway to Queens to visit the 1939 World's Fair. But in the end, his distance from Germany felt to him like an escape and a mistake. He knew he must return and the sooner the better. When at last he boarded the ship to go back to Germany, Bonhoeffer had been in New York no more, no more than 26 days. Okay. He's going back to Germany. He's, you know, uh, knows what he's going back to and uh, yet he felt he was compelled to go back and do what he could for his uh, his country. Um, concerning his theology, it said, a thorough Christ-centeredness that permeates his theology. Okay. Here's a quote. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Pretty simple, pretty plain. And right now, you guys are probably thinking at least two or three verses that would support that, right? Uh, It's not philosophical in any way. It was just a flat statement. He was eventually arrested and put in prison. And uh, he wrote a series of letters from prison. And knowing that, you know, his life on this earth is coming to an end, he said, I am sure of God's hand and guidance. You must never doubt that I am thankful and glad to go the way which I am being led. My past life is abundantly full of God's mercy, and above all sin stands the forgiving love of the crucified. Okay, That's a quote from his uh, book, Cost of Discipleship, and it comes from one of the letters that he wrote from prison. And so uh, we know that then he, in, uh, in 1945, he was uh, executed at the command of Heinrich Himmler, uh, supposedly for his involvement in the plot to uh, Kill or murder Hitler, and again, I I haven't researched it. I'm not sure what his involvement was, uh, uh, but uh, I'm not sure that they needed a whole big excuse because of his uh, outward testimony against uh, in the history against uh, against the Nazism. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I could not recommend unless you just have a lot of time on your hands. Uh, either Bart or Tillich, any other their systematic theology, but I can definitely recommend um, the book, The Cost of Discipleship. So, uh, yeah. Oh, was it? Yeah. April 9th. Yeah. And then the war ended, what, was it just at the end of May? I mean, it didn't last more than, I mean, Hitler committed suicide, I think before the end of May, May 30th or something like that. So a week or so, yeah. Yeah, and then that uh, where he was held prison was liberated by the Allies uh, shortly thereafter. So, you know, um, quite a man. And of course, we have to place these people in their context, both historically, you know, and uh, even in their theological context. And and uh, you know, I, I see I see a whole lot more that gives me confidence that I'm gonna that I'm gonna meet uh, Bonhoeffer some day in heaven than maybe Paul Tillich. I mean. God is judge, but uh, he, he had a simple faith, and yet he knew when he went back to, back to Germany what was probably going to happen to him. Um, but he wanted to go back so that he could... Uh, well, we don't have that one. Let me see. Maybe I have that quote over here. Oh, here we go. <clears throat> Speaking of why he went back, and he wrote to his friend Reinhold Niebuhr. Reinhold Niebuhr was also a theologian. He said, I shall have no right, Bonhoeffer wrote to Niebuhr before leaving America this last time, to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. Christians in Germany will face the terrible alternative of either willing the defeat of their nation in order that Christians... Christian civilization may survive, or willing the victory of their nation and thereby destroying our civilization. I know which of these alternatives I must choose, but I cannot make this choice in security. Okay? Want to go back, do what he could, and even after the war ended, try to help reconstruct uh, the nation. So that's that's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Any other thoughts you might have on this man? It's good to end on a little bit of a more of a positive note with a guy like that, right? Yeah, I haven't seen it. Uh, Yeah, I mean, if a man's willing to die for his faith and um, keep a testimony like he did. Ah, okay, yeah. Yeah, Um, and that's a big issue today too, right? Christian nationalism. By the way, a very excellent message by Jesse Johnson at the Shepherds Conference. It's online now. They got their media up. You should listen to that if you have an interest in uh, the issue of and the definitions of christian nationalism he he does a really fine fine message uh, there, so we started the uh, Reformation a week or so ago and got up to the point in time where Martin Luther makes the scene. Uh, I think Dave went over quite a bit of what the background was and what was going on at that point in time, and uh, leading up to it we we 've been through this quite a bit, I think, already, and in your reading, the uh, Catholic Church, which was the dominant religious structure of the day, and um, we come to Martin Luther now and his great contribution to the to the Reformation. Uh, born in 1483, died in 1546, and of course that famous event in uh, 1517 where he nailed those 95 thesis on the door of the Church of Wittenberg. The day he did that, John Calvin was eight years old. Give you a little perspective on uh, how those two guys uh, relate time-wise. And um, when he did that, he really just sort of uh, tipped over the first domino in a great big string of dominoes. It was uh, sort of a perfect storm for that to happen. He was noticing the the uh, and, and really resented the way that the priesthood was using indulgences and uh, was uh, taking advantage of the people and uh, so there was a real groundswell of support for what he was doing because he essentially took the side of the people who were being abused by the Catholic priesthood. And uh, so, a lot of what uh, he said in the 95 theses was against what was going on, as uh, as uh, you know. <clears throat> Pope Leo the tenth, there on page 24 in your notes, called him a wild boar who has invaded the Lord's vineyard. Okay, and as we know from the history of Luther, Luther could he he was a wild boar. He could be crude. He could be crass. He could be belligerent. He could be foul and nasty at times. And, uh, you know, you say, well, how is it God used a man like that in the Reformation? Well, doing Reformation work in that system at that point in time was uh, lewd, crude, wild boar kind of work, right? I mean, he took that kind of a personality, apparently, to get that done. Where was where was Saul of Tarsus when God knocked him off his horse in the dirt? What was he doing? He was on a mission, right? Relentlessly going after Christians. And what did he do after God saved him? He was on a mission, right? Relentless. You couldn't you couldn't pin that guy down except you put him in jail, right? And so God uses people uh, to accomplish His purposes and it may not look to us like the guy is suitable or you know maybe nobody we we would pick uh, would you pick peter you know uh maybe not the best candidate or any of those guys and yet this is this is what it took to do that because remember the catholic system was and is an attempt to reconstitute the levitical system right it has all the trappings it has altars it has a priesthood, it has this hierarchical structure that is a theocracy. It governs not only your spiritual life, your religious life, but also your civil life as well, right? And um, at that point in time, and and it had come to this over over the course of history, people did not have access to the Word of God. The Bible was not available to people. In many of those churches, the Bible was chained to the pulpit, okay? And even if you had a Bible, you Probably couldn't read it because of the illiteracy problem at the time. And even if you had a Bible, you probably and could read, you may not have been able to read it anyway because it was probably going to be in Latin and not German. So, so they did not have access to the Word of God. And uh, that made them 100% dependent on the priesthood and their religious system. And of course, as we know, they were more than happy to take advantage of that, right? Selling indulgences. Um, one of the comments that he makes in one of the, one of the, uh, one of the 95 theses, he talks about he's critical of the priests because they spend as much time, um, trying to sell indulgences to people than they do in the Word of God. Okay. And, uh, there's even, uh, uh, examples of their sermons that they give and they personally appeal to people whose family members have died and they they're very dramatic in how they do that you know your mother and your father your dearly beloved departed ones are right now this very minute crying from purgatory asking you why why won't you buy me out of purgatory don't you have compassion on me those types of appeals right i mean the guy you know the prosperity theologians today I man they got nothing on these guys and so that's what was going on. And, and they were being told and they believed it. If you just give some money, you can shorten the length of time in purgatory where the, their sins are being purged or purged, right? And so, uh, Luther just rebelled against this. And, uh, remember that he started out being trained as an, as a lawyer, trained in law, as did Calvin. And I think that, that says a lot. I think we've commented on that. Um, a lawyer is trained to look at a text of scripture or a text and to make a very literal interpretation of it. Right, a contract, anything like that, any legal document—they're trained to read it for what it actually says. And one of the main problems uh, of the uh, of the day was that they had followed more the theology of of uh, Alexandria, the Alexandrian school of uh, interpretation rather than the one of Antioch. Antioch tended to have a more of a literal interpretation. Uh, the Alexandrians, Origen and, uh, those folks, they tended to more make an allegory or spiritualize the text of scripture. And so, uh, the Catholic Church mainly just bought into that. And so, uh, even if they did have a text in front of them, they would allegorize it or spiritualize it. So you had no idea what the, what the Bible actually said. So that's what was going on when um, he launched the Reformation, as as it's commonly taught, by doing what he did. I mean, he really was throwing down the gauntlet when, uh, when he did that. When you say that the Pope is not the head of the church, Christ is the head of the church, you're throwing down a big gauntlet, right? And um, we might think, well, okay, uh so, what well what so, what is you 've got one thing to do you 're not going to go off into a theological library and write your doctoral dissertation uh, you don 't have time for that because you 're going to be running for your life right uh, because remember, the system controlled all not only your spiritual life but your civil life as well, and there was this um, this horrific church state relationship. This greasy, oily, throbbing, incestuous, perverted relationship between church and state, right? So you could be accused of blasphemy on the one hand and maybe be put on trial and executed for treason on the other. Okay. Because they were, they were in league together. And of course, the money and the power, the power, money, money, power, those two things are always together, right? You see it now in politics. And so this is what was going on when he launched this and of course it was sort of a perfect storm because somewhere around 50 or 60 years prior to that event Gutenberg had developed the printing press. So now uh you have this um this ability to print things and get them out to the public, okay? The the development of the printing press pretty much was tantamount to the uh, internet now. It might even have been a a more uh important uh uh-huh. development, but uh that 's kind of the background uh Luther, as you know the story he uh he he tried to become an Augustinian monk, he joined the monastery and uh, he struggled with his own sinfulness and uh you know the story he uh he, everything he tried to do. To impress God didn't work. He got, he got, eventually got just angry at God because he understood that God was saying, he understood the righteousness of God and he understood the demand. If you're going to have a right relationship with God, you have to live up to that righteousness. And he kept trying to find it in himself and he couldn't do it. And, uh, it, it led him to great frustration and even within the, the, um, the uh, monastery that he was in he began to really frustrate the people that were in charge of him because he'd show up for every uh every single confessional you know multiple times a day confess his sins and he even was wearing uh uh underwear that was scratchy because it would make him uncomfortable and he was doing all kinds of things to try to please god but uh, it just did not work and uh one of the things that he did, and this is from your reading from 153 through 155, just to kind of encapsulate what he did, what he thought, okay? He rejected the methodology of scholastic natural theology. And, and what you're going to see here, you're going to see methodology um, and interpretive issues going on here. Remember that before there was a, a reformation of theology, there was a reformation of hermeneutics, or principles of interpretation. One led to the other. And uh, This next fall we're going to be talking about hermeneutics. Um, just absolutely critical. Hermeneutics determines your theology, right? Methodology determines conclusions every time. Show me what your conclusions are. I can kind of sort of tell you what your methodology is, and vice versa. Show me what your hermeneutical principles are. Tell me. I'll tell you where you're going to wind up. Wait, we, have, we have a closed canon of Scripture. We have a limited amount of data to deal with, right? So it's really not that hard. But he rejected the methodology of of the natural theology. He rejected the means of salvation taught by the Catholic Church. And these are connected. He rejected the Catholic Church view of man's ability to cooperate with God in salvation. He rejected a synergistic, as it's called, form of theology in favor of uh, what? Know the name of it? Monergism, right? The reformers are real big on that. He rejected the Roman Catholic view of justification and its relationship to sanctification. Justification, as you know, is a forensic declaration by God of the righteousness of that person. And it's made at a point in time. And it is a complete act by which God justifies you. And then what follows is a progressive sanctification, right? What the Catholic Church did, and still does, is they just don't confuse and conflate justification and sanctification. They absolutely transpose them so that you're justified by <coughs> sanctification. And that, sanct- and that justification can never be known in this life. It's like a carrot on a stick. You know, It's always out in front of you. Even after death, this is why if you've ever been to a Catholic funeral, they pray for the dead person. It's sad. And this is why they had to come up with purgatory because they could not offer anybody any hope of justification because they die and they talk about them being in, being dead without being justified. Well, then why would I want to have anything to do with Catholicism? So they had to promise them, okay, wh- what the deal is they're there in this place called purgatory, having their sins purged or purged. And, uh, it may take 10,000 years, may take, you know, shorter, depends on how much money you can kind of, drop into the coffer, right? And so this was the system that uh, he had to confront, but he rejected the Catholic view of justification and its relationship to sanctification. And he rejected the Roman Catholic position of church authority. Again, this was a big one. Who's in charge here? What is the authority? This is a massive issue. It's still an issue right now. Uh, you can look at almost any theological issue that we would talk about or teach, teach on, you know, that's going on out there. And a lot of times you can just boil it down to authority. Is it, is the authority my feelings or is it the scriptures? What if my feelings don't line up with the scriptures? Which one do I take, right? And so, uh, this was a big issue. The Pope is not the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. And then he rejected the priesthood of the Catholic the sole priesthood of the Catholic priesthood. This is one of the solas that he did not like, okay? That the priesthood is the the only way you can have access to God, and you have to come through the priesthood to do that. And of course, they they understood from Scripture that everyone has access. Everyone who has faith in Jesus Christ has equal access to God the Father, and that became known as the priesthood of the believer. Very important doctrine. And then, He rejected all of the Roman sacraments except for baptism and the Lord's Supper. Um, The sacraments were very important because those sacraments are all the means to being justified, right? Now, he did not do a what we might think would be a complete reformation of even these two. Um, But, you know, uh, again... We can sit here centuries later and say, you know, how how come you didn't reform this, or how come you didn't fix this? You know, there's a lot of things that are left unreformed, and there are because the Reformation should be going on even today. Um, but you know, we have to give them credit for what they did. We're the beneficiaries of what the reformers did, and um, many of them paid paid for the things we take for granted. Many of them paid with their lives for those doctrines. Okay. Including things like transubstantiation. You take a stand against that. People were executed for that, you know. And so, uh, that kind of encapsulates what his uh, approach was. Okay. And of course, that led the reformers to the five solas, sola scriptura or scripture alone. And then from that, you get sola gratia, grace alone. Salvation is by God's grace alone. And again, sola fide. Through faith alone, object of our faith is Christ alone, and all of that works toward what? The glory of God alone. Classic statement of the solas that come from, and notice the alone, the alone, the alone, the alone. They cleared away all of the clutter that had been added to it. The The, the gospel is sort of like a, like a sailing ship, the old sailing ships going through the ocean, you know. Down below the waterline, those wooden ships used to collect a lot of stuff, barnacles and all kinds of things, and eventually they would just sink, you know, if they didn't haul them out of the water and clean them. So this is what um, what sort of is the result of the Reformation and what these men accomplished. You could take that structure there and flip it around on its head if you want a little more of a, of a uh, graphic view. Sola scriptura, scripture alone, foundational, right? You start there, and then from that, you wind up with salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The telos or the end result is, of course, the glory of God alone. Very basic. And so, uh, this is what they, what they captured, you know, what they, what they rescued. They didn't invent the doctrines of grace. Remember, we can't give them more credit than they're due. But what they did, they rescued them out of that system. And uh, Martin Luther, fourteen eighty three. Here's how he did it. All right, he says this, and remember, he's he's going through all of this turmoil and and he's struggling with the word of God, and in Ro- especially Romans one seventeen that talks about the righteousness of God, and he kept kept thinking, okay, how am I going to come up with this? I can't do it. He kept trying to find all these ways to, to uh, come up with this righteousness. And then this is what happened. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night on Romans 1.17, I gave heed to the context of the words. Namely, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written. He who through faith is righteous shall live, or the just shall live by faith. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous live by a gift of God, namely by faith. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. What does he do here? hermeneutics, right? He read it in its context. Are you telling me that simply reading the scripture in its context kicked open the doors to the Reformation? Sounds like it, right? What are your thoughts? How important are hermeneutics? Pretty important. I mean, to all of a sudden realize this is, it's not God demanding that I produce the righteousness that that satisfies Him. It's His righteousness He wants to give me as a gift through faith. Just that simple. Okay? Um, sometimes the very simple things are the most profound, are they not? And uh, so, that's how it all got started. Well, we know then that... Uh, Luther on page twenty-five talks about his writings. Uh, talks about the ninety-five theses there that he's probably the most famous for. Uh, he wrote quite a few other things that aren't on this list. Some of them not very good. These guys, remember, they are a uh, they're a mixed bag, like we are. Uh, Luther and Calvin and even many of the other reformers they 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 wrote and had some issues and and. Uh, Ways of looking at things that we would disagree with, and we would say, this is, this is not scriptural. But in these basic things, they, they, they really kicked the door open, and we're the beneficiaries of it uh, to this day, of uh, what came down to us. And much of it, they, many of the times, they paid for it with their lives. Okay? It's interesting, if you ever read uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs, and uh, you look back at what were some of these people executed for? And we consider that just very simple, basic doctrine, some of the issues. you know, They just took a stand against it and uh, paid for it with their lives. And um, so you guys have any thoughts on what we've seen so far or on anything that—on uh, Martin Luther— no, I think that's, that is sort of a product of okay. the total picture of things. Yeah. Now, he definitely wrote on in his commentaries on some of these, all of these issues. You know, one of the part of his story was that apparently the monks in the monastery got so fed up with him, they, they wanted to get rid of him. So they sent him off to be a professor. And uh, one of the things he taught was Paul's letter to the Galatians. Which helped him clarify his understanding of salvation by God's grace through faith alone. In fact, he really fell in love with um, Paul's letter to the Galatians and uh, named it "Mein Frau," my wife. So, but yeah, I think that's just a summation of of the total picture of what the reformers did. Well, if on turn on page fifty three here, I'm going to get you guys out of here in a few minutes. But uh, just a couple of things kind of fascinating. Remember that the that the the 95 theses were not it was supposed to be an announcement for a a theological disputation, okay? Uh that's what they would do. It was like a the door was like a bulletin board and uh, it would be like posting something, you know, or uh posting something on your web page. Well, here's what I believe and I think maybe we need to discuss this. That type of thing. And that's all that's all he wanted to do was just to have a discussion. But it, uh, it really just, uh, the timing of it was such that it just uh, really took hold. And again, when these things began to be able to be published and passed around and spread around, it spread like wildfire. So um, <clears throat> much of what he says here is about repentance, and um, he, he, again, this is just supposed to be topics for discussion, but look how he words some of this. Look at number 10 ignorant and wicked are the doings of those priests who in the case of the dying reserve canonical penances for purgatory i mean he's he's sort of blunt you know but that's it took some bluntness to get this thing going um he makes comments about what really are uh, in 18 and 19 on page 54 really what are the authority of scripture when he talks about in both eighteen and nineteen, it seems unproved either by reason or scripture that they are outside the state of merit, that is to say, of increasing love. So you hear how he's he's going to scripture, he's standing on scripture, uh, it, even in these statements, even way early on. Again, verse nineteen or number nineteen. Again, it seemed unproved that they, or at least that all of them, are certain or assured of their own blessedness, and so on. And uh, so, in many of these, he just flat out throws down the gauntlet and said, Here's what we need to teach. He's not questioning it. He's not asking for opinions. He's just declaring, uh, We must do that. Number 24, it must needs be, therefore, that the greater part of the people are deceived by that indiscriminate and high sounding promise of release from penalty. In other words, indulgences, promising people, Oh, yeah, you know, you give me some money and we'll as the priesthood, we'll pray to get your, uh, your beloved father out of purgatory, you know? He says, you can't do that. And so on. So there's, uh, it's very interesting just to read through there and you get a little flavor of what's going on at the time and what he's upset about. It's always a little bit like, um, you know, when Paul wrote to the Corinthian Christians, he has like a, a series of issues, right? And each one of those passages, it says, Now concerning... Now concerning. They're called the peri-day, Greek peri-day, now concerning, because people, the scholars think that he probably got a list. This is going on in Corinth, right? And so when he wrote 1 Corinthians, he addressed this list. And so I always think of that when I see his list here of things that he is not happy about. Number 45, Christians are to be taught that he who sees a man in need and passes him by and gives his money for pardons purchases not the indulgences of the Pope, but the indignation of God. I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's throwing it down kind of hard. And again, 46 Christians are to be taught that unless they have more than they need, they are bound to keep back what is necessary for their own families and by no means to squander it on pardons. It's a waste of money to try to buy indulgences and so on. Well, we'll probably stop right there unless you guys have some other thoughts or questions about this. And Again, our study is somewhat limited. There's a whole lot more we could go into with uh, each one of these people, but uh, I think it, uh, hopefully it might encourage you to do some additional reading into uh, these folks and what was going on there. So any other thoughts or questions you might have? What we've seen tonight? Right, and... Um, as a trim carpenter, I don't think he had a four-pound hammer that he was nailing on the road. Those The pictures, he got. you know, it's like he's going to whack that door with this. Well, he probably didn't have a staple gun, but I mean, I don't know if he had a four-pound hammer, he was nailing that thing on the door. Man, I'd kind of get their attention, bam, bam. But uh, yeah, context is everything, right? Context with Scripture, but also context with history. He did not want to leave the Catholic Church. He was excommunicated. The the Reformers became a subset of Catholicism. They stayed in there until they were kicked out or executed or put in prison. And um, ultimately, when you think about it, they did not reform the Catholic Church. I mean, the Council of Trent got together and responded against the Reformation and published their uh, their stuff and basically pronounced anathema on everything these guys taught. If you say you're justified in this life, you're damned. According to Council Trent, so they're irreformable. Okay, it's important to remember that as well. So, so what they what they gave us was a return to Scripture, a return to Scripture, and uh, these biblical principles, and and their approach to Scripture. And again, very important. Before there was a reformation of doctrinal issues, there was a reformation of hermeneutics. That's simple. In the I saw, I read it in its context. Wow, that's that's kind of good. That should encourage us, right, as we as we uh, look at Scripture. Keep it in context. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.